Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As a professional historian, my work shows me that the contemporary world has a huge effect on how we study the past. And the topic of today's podcast is a remarkable example of exactly that. Some of you listening might remember the Iranian Revolution, which took place in 1979. If you don't, check out the history hit episode Origins of Modern Iran if you'd like to know more. In short, an imperial state ruled by a monarchical government was superseded by the present-day Islamic Republic. As you can imagine, this monumental political shift affected every aspect of life, including the way Iran's history is explored. In fact, following the Iranian Revolution, the number of scholars interested in studying the history of Iran exploded. In particular, the Safavid dynasty, the monarchical family which ruled from 1501 to 1736, became an entire field in its own right, spawning subfields examining the economy, the military, diplomacy, society and culture. And my goodness, what a rich and dizzying array of sources there are to feast upon. The record chronicles, diplomatic correspondence, religious documents the notes of Western travellers and Iran's residents, scholars and literary works, and commercial and political records, which are in Dutch, English, French, German, Portuguese, Spanish, Turkish and Armenian, hinting at Iran's connections. And I haven't mentioned those in Persian and Arabic. We also have non-textual remains, buildings, monuments, coins, pottery, carpets, paintings, metalwork and illustrations. I could go on. With so many aspects of early modern Iran now open to us, I am very excited to start our journey at the beginning, the creation and development of the Safavid dynasty. To introduce us to this fascinating history, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Andrew Newman, Personal Chair of Islamic Studies and Persian at the University of Edinburgh, as well as Outreach Director at the British Institute of Persian Studies. Professor Newman has written and edited tens of books and articles on the Safavid dynasty, covering everything from religious and medical practices to political authority and the lives of ordinary people. Professor Newman, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. We've not got to Iran before, so I'm very excited about today's episode. Was Safavid the family surname? Was that how they would have been referred to at the time? The Safavids originally were a Sufi kind of an order up in the northwestern parts of Iran, and they go back a number of centuries to the eponymous Sheikh Safi Adin, and he was understood to be the leader of this Sufi order, and so that's where the house comes from. The head of a Sufi order is called a peer, P-I-R, and it simply means the spiritual leader of that order. And so during the Safavid period, the Shahs were also understood still to be the head of that Sufi order, and so they were understood to be both the political figures, but also Sufi figures. So Pir and Shah and other sorts of terms were used about them and by them interchangeably. These things would have been understood on the ground. But the Safavid Sufi order then morphed into a more political military order, especially 
in the last bunch of years in the 15th century during the rule in this region in the plateau area of the Turkic dynasties, the Okoyunlu and the Karakoyun. They were around for a bunch of years, held a bunch of territory in the area that we now know as roughly eastern Turkey, northeastern Iraq, bits of Syria, and northwestern Iran, and expanded and contracted over those years. The Safavids were married into these groups. They were supported militarily by Turkic tribes, if you will, in inverted commas. And gradually, as the Safavids won allegiances, those same tribes moved over to support the Safavid Sufi order. So you're talking about the same kind of military constituency, as it were, these Turkish tribes who had been in that area for many years. These Turkish statelets, as it were, were administered by what they call native or Tajik administrative classes. These were historians, these were administrators, these were scribes and such. Remember, in this period, the literacy rate is very tiny. So these were inherited or family positions. And those folks also then gradually moved in to support the Safavid entity. I don't like to use the word state. So I prefer things like polity or entity, something like that, because state, especially these days, conjures up things which don't actually apply. Fixed borders, fixed languages, which for the most part in the pre-modern period don't really apply to anybody, but they certainly don't apply to the Middle East and not necessarily to Iran in the kind of way that we automatically slip into it. Yes, and it's interesting there, you're saying pre-modern, we would talk about this period as being the early modern, but of course the Safavids are using a different calendar, so perhaps we can have a think about that. You raise a very good point. Where does it fit in? I'd say pre-modern because I'm thinking about this move towards things that we would begin to construe as state and such. There's lots of continuity and there's some important change between the pre-Safavid period in the plateau area and the post-Safavid period, as it were. We tend to define those by political dates, which is not entirely satisfactory, and suggest sharp starts and sharp ends. And that doesn't really work in that sort of idea. It's much more continuity than there is change over this period. For one thing, over the whole period, plateau, as I like to refer to it, another word for really entity or polity or whatever one wants to call it, was really mainly rural, and that would be mainly tribal and peasant. So in the 17th century, in a population of no more than 9 million, a very imprecise, but a sort of a cricket pitch figure there, 90% of the population would have been rural. And that obtained in Iran up until the early 1980s, actually most of the population was rural. Secondly, much of the population didn't actually speak Persian. And there's a book that came out last year or this year, which was talking about the present Persian speaking population of possibly 40% of Iran today. So there's a huge sort of mosaic. Iran is an entrepot for east-west interactions, military, political, commercial, from Europe, but also more regionally. Iran's trading partner, for example, in these years was always India. Despite the rise of the age of explorations and such, throughout this period, Iran's trade was mainly east-west, from India through Iran onto the Levant and then on up into other places, Europe or wherever it was. But Iran, the plateau has always been a cultural diversity, multicultural entity from the get-go because of this status as a geographical area. So there's different religions, different ethnicities, different languages and such, certainly in the Safavid period, but again, on up until quite recently, Persian, while it is the national language, is not necessarily everybody's language. Probably of the languages that would work would be varieties of Turkic, not necessarily the Turkish that we associate with modern day, the Ottoman Empire or the Turkish period, but again, it's very diverse. So the idea is that things are quite complex. We know most in the Safavid period about what's going on in the urban areas. Mm. But if one remembers that the urban areas are a fraction of the activity, then we actually know very little about an awful lot. Yeah. And so we think of 1501 as the beginning of the Safavid dynasty. But you're suggesting that actually what we see is more of a process of the family becoming a ruling monarchy. It would be misleading to think about it as conquering Iran as a singular moment. That would be overly political, if you will. Interesting way to do it. And when you write about the period, sadly, you can't write a 500,000 word thing. You have to figure it out somehow. So I tend to do things chronologically, but within that, I tend to do things thematically. So it's a political date, 1501. You're absolutely right. Shah Ismail at the head of this tribal confederation, many of whose members had been affiliated with other statelets in the region, went into Tabriz, which had political roots. 
and then gradually moved east and took over about eight or so little, shall we call them entities, reaching Herat and such, and then moving south. So he had political control, but it wasn't in that sense, nor was it ever the highly sorts of centralized, exclusive sort of power that we think of when we talk about state. I talk about constituencies. Later scholars who work on, for example, Iran in the 19th and 20th century talked about pacts between different entities, who was really in power. And the answer is, even up until the very recent period, there were lots of different centers of power. In the Safavid period, again, you had tribes who were militarily organized, but you had the rise of the clergy as well over the course of the period. Twelver Shiism, which is the present day faith, became established officially in this period. There are questions about how far it permeated down into the popular level. Certainly on the urban area, it was important. But again, if most people didn't speak Persian, and most people are out in the countryside, it's difficult to actually understand the, the dynamics of this and to what extent there. But that's a big thing now, it makes it very important. So it's a much more gradual stuff. And there is as much an argument, going back to your original point, for continuity as there is for change. There's important things that happen, but really, even after the political fall of the Safavids, some 200 and something years later, the Safavids are the longest lasting Islamic period dynasty. So that's quite an accomplishment, really. And my question has always been, in two words, how come? Or in one word, why? In other words, to me, it represents something of a success. And its legacies, its continuities, remain for an awful long time thereafter. Again, predominantly tribal. Later, political rulers were drawn from the same sets of tribes that put the Shah Ismail on the throne in the first place in 1501. This is very much an Islamic power. There is this sense that religion and politics are almost inseparable. Can you explain a little bit more for us about the relationship between the Safavid and Sufism? You touched on this earlier, but just so we really understand it, and Shia Islam. Again, you need to go back slightly before. And on the plateau, in these years of the 1400s and such, there was a great amalgamation or complexity of discourse that was not really orthodox by anybody's standards at any time. Again, mainly a rural population, heavily tribal population. And they looked to their leaders as almost like Sufi orders, like peers. They had that sense of the leaders as semi-divine in some cases. The discourse was very complex. It venerated the various 12 imams of Shiism, just a digression, the 12th imam disappeared in the early 870s, and the 12 or Shia are those who believe in his return. He's still alive, but he's not presently visible because the situation is not safe, and eventually he will come back. So the 12 as the other Abrahamic faith traditions, are waiting for someone. But in those days, the 1400s and 1500s even, the orthodoxy was determined mainly in Arabic-speaking intellectual centers in Lebanon, for example, or in Iraq or other places. Most of the populations weren't literate. The clerical scholars who wrote these kinds of texts didn't go out to the middle of nowhere. They mainly were urban-based, but if the populations throughout the region are rural, then you know the question is to what extent were any of this orthodoxy really understood? And the answer is probably not much. So you had these very diffuse messianic, millenarian, Sufi, Shi'i traditions circulating on the plateau, and lots of different Sufi orders embodied some of these. So when the Safavids came to embody that, and the Safavid Shah or peer was at the head of, he was at the apex of that, but didn't speak Arabic, didn't speak Persian, probably some variety of Turkish, possibly Chagatai or something like that. So they affiliated themselves with this very broad, complex heterogeneity discourse, which was not recognized really as being anything like Orthodox, certainly throughout most of the 1500s. So that was one sort of thing. But the Shah then portrayed himself really in those years as the peer, this Safavid order, which embodied all this. Ismail wrote this famous Divan collection of poems. And these have been translated a couple of times into English. And if you look at this poetry, he talks about himself in terms that would relate to all the different constituencies, Christian, Muslim, pre-Islamic, Iranian sorts of literary figures and heroes and such. And he is the embodiment of all these different traditions, faith, as it were, and non-faith traditions that were circulating around in the plateau, both rural and urban. He says, I am at the apex of all of these things. I am Ali, the first of the Shi'i imams, but I'm also the prophet. I'm Jesus come back. He lists a number of the traditional Persian heroes all to talk to the different groups. So Christian, non-Christian, everything is in there. 
And he's saying, in effect, to all of these, I'm at the apex of each of your traditions. That's quite a claim, isn't it? It's quite a claim. But he backed this up and the Safavids backed this up in deeds, actually, as well. So it wasn't just a claim. But when they came to power, they reached out to all of these different constituencies. And that's part of the Safavid success over 200 something years is becoming more and more inclusive of more and more constituencies on the plateau. And that's why at crucial times when the leader disappears, if you base everything on the leader, what happens when that leader, that personality disappears? Whoa, you're potentially going to have chaos. And certainly in the 1500s, that happened twice when Ismail died in 1524 and his son Tahmasp died in 1576. And chaos breaks out because everybody had organized their understandings of everything. Remember, there's no division of knowledge. There's no secular, non-secular. Everybody looks at the world in these sort of comprehensive ways. And so the alignments fall apart. What's interesting about the alignments of tribal groups and also the Tajik administrators is by this time, they've started working together. And so what you're having at these long periods of civil war in the aftermath of the death of Ismail and then similarly in death of Tahmasp in the 1570s, jockeying for power, but at no point in the Safavid period were ever saying, let's get rid of these guys. Let's overthrow the whole house and start something completely different. Everybody's been given a practical stake, marriages, for example, with the house and between different groups on the plateau, property. The tribes, when they conquer the area, are given, if you will, fiefdoms across the plateau region. Titles, you're put into the inner circle of the Shah and the administrative system. And those things hold throughout such crucial crises as Ottoman defeat in 1514, the death of Ismail in 1524, and the death of Tahmasp. Whereas other entities maybe overthrow the whole thing and just say, no, let's start from scratch. All these different groups saw their interests, their discourse, their rhetoric, their understanding of the world embodied in the Shah. And as long as you were loyal to that individual, then lots of things were permitted. Christians could go and do their own marriage traditions. Jews were there. It was a great deal of diversity. And so it retained that throughout this period. And again, if one's looking for secrets of success, that's where I end up, bringing people in rather than pushing people out. Yes, I've got two questions coming out of that. One action which Ismail is known for, which at first sight appears to not fit with what you're just saying in terms of toleration, is his destruction of the tombs of some of the Abbasid caliphs, the predecessors of the Middle Eastern rule. Why do you think he did this? I'd like to look at the sources on all of that. Many of the things that are attributed to the early Shahs in particular come from much later sources. You've got a variety of different kinds of sources. First and foremost, before people really got into the Safavids, you were looking at European sources, travelers, missionaries, Carmelite Catholics, all sorts of people. You had diplomats and you had commercial entities. In the early days, this was the Spanish-Portuguese expansion in the 1500s. In the 1600s, this became the East India Company and the VOC, the Dutch East India Company. But you also had, as I say, missionaries and such. They all had an agenda. In the case of the Shah, for example, throughout the period, he is consistently trying to get the Europeans, and the Europeans are interested in constructing an anti-Ottoman alliance. But this never really comes to fruition, and the Shahs reach independent deals, both in 1555 and 1639, which peace treaties work out okay. But these accounts, you need to really look at them quite carefully and try to figure out what the agenda is, and that's what we don't necessarily do. One scholar has written that we actually learn more about the foreigners themselves than we do anything about the foreign, as it were, about Iran. And remember, if you're moving through the countryside on the way to trying to get to see the Shah, if you're a diplomat or something, you don't speak any of the languages, especially if Persian is not going to do you much good outside of a few urban areas. You don't know anything about farming or peasantry because you're a posh person. You don't get your hands dirty. And so how can we rely on those kinds of accounts? for verbatim quotes, for really understanding the dynamic of society. And that's really not so good. Another set of accounts you've got is court chronicles. These are mainly in Persian, produced over both centuries. From Again, the Safavids starting in 1501, falling, as it were, losing the political event of the fall of Esfahan to the Afghans in 1722. These are mainly Persian accounts, but they also are getting paid. <laughs> and they look at things from the angle of their own interests. You have to kind of stand way back and sadly, ask a different question. It's not always going to be possible that we're going to find out what happened on February 22nd, 1602, 
it's a great question, but we may never really know. And therefore, you need to know as much about the writer of the chronicle as about the period. You also have religious sources, and that's the thing in which I'm mainly interested. Those are actually mainly written in Arabic still throughout the period, rather like Latin was the language of the Catholic Church. If you're going to write a history of the Catholic Church, you better know some Latin. If you're going to write about certainly Islam generally in this period and Shi'i Islam in their Safavid period, you better know Arabic. You can know Persian. It's useful, but you really need to know both. Okay, you can't do one and not the other. Those are the three major ones. But then also you've got, as it were, material culture. So art, architecture. And oftentimes, one of the problems about writing about the Safavid period is a whole bunch of people who do one, and in which we might include religion. And then there's the people who do the sort of socioeconomic and political, and they don't really talk to each other very much at all, or they only write about their thing, not taking into account the other dynamics and all these other realms of human activity. If you're going to try and understand the Safavids, you really need to do both and try to put the thing together because that's how life was on the ground. And so for understanding this allegation about his destruction of the tombs, what sources do we have there and why do you think that they are not to be trusted? I think you need to know about the author and you need to know about the context and the time period. Okay. Of course. Uh, yeah. One of the things to talk about, to go back to this point of tolerance, okay, because it comes down to tolerance. The Abbasids started off as sort of Shia, but really were more Sunni than not. When a lot of the administrative class and the history writers and the scribes and such moved over to allegiance to the Safavid period, these folks and their families had no particular Shi'i ties. So if we follow that line of projection, they shouldn't have been given jobs. But if you look at this as saying the idea is to bring people together, you'll find that a nominal conversion to Shi'ism is really all it takes. But there are certain instances in Herat, for example, yes, where this kind of thing is done mostly for a local audience. So this particular one, I'd have to go take a look at it. But there are other allegations, and you see this a lot in the secondary sources, and you go down to the footnote, and usually they're citing another secondary source, which, of course, you don't want. You want to go back, let's find the primary source and try and trace this back. And the ones I've looked at, some of the very outlandish claims begin to look at the earlier period and big up the anti-Sunni dimensions of what was going on. One notices over the period in terms of history writing, for example, the 1500s history writing tends to want to go back and legitimize the Safavids in terms of allegiances to, for example, Timur Lang, another wave of these conquerors who's coming in from the East. But when you get to the 16th century, the dynamic changes and you don't talk about that kind of legacy. It's a legitimization thing. I'm a last and a descendant here. By this time, it's well accepted that the Safavids themselves, the house, was descended from the imams, in particular Imam Musa, and then all the way back through the prophet. A lot of that is understood because a lot of the other little entities, Sufi millionaire movements that were going on at the time, also had a descendant of the prophet, were understood to be a descendant of the prophet. They projected themselves as such, as being in charge. So it's important for the Safavids to be of that entity, and they put themselves back to the seventh imam, and then all the way back to Imam Ali, the prophet's cousin and son-in-law, and then to the prophet himself. So you had this kind of legitimacy. And in the 17th century, the 1600s, you get more of that. You get more of, we're part of this Safavid line, and less reference to that. So the discourse has moved rather subtly. You're no longer trying to legitimize yourself. You're saying, okay, we're established, and this is how we are carrying on. But at certain times, it suits the audience to big up these kinds of things because it's a particular dynamic. A lot of accounts that we also look at, as I was saying, some of these court accounts, a number of accounts on which scholars have relied to date are post-Safavid, written after the period. And of course, what those writers are by and large trying to do is say, oh, it was a good experiment, but gosh, they really messed up, but we're the show now. And so our people, our understanding of this is the way, because after all, they're no longer around. So you can't really rely on them either for a factual understanding of what happened on, what did I say, February 12th, 1601. You're just not going to get that. You have to step back and ask a different kind of a question. And so my question has always been, how come they did so well? And it's this notion of, again, inclusivity, bringing different groups. So in the 16th century, you start out with the Turkic military elements and the Tajik administrative class. In the 17th century, you've got new constituencies who've moved in as well. The Armenians had been forcibly extracted from Eastern Ottoman Empire, put down in Esfahan, the then capital. But then, again, as an example of sort of tolerance and such, 
allowed to build churches, conduct their own affairs with complete freedom, marriages and civic rule their own entity there. At a time when, for example, there were no Jews in England, yeah. right? Edward I kicked out all the Jews. They weren't invited back into Cromwell. And here you had Jews and Armenians and all sorts of different entities here on the plateau. There were their moments where they were scapegoated. Absolutely, that did happen. But these were explicable in the terms of what was the context of the events, usually of some sort of economic situation. And again, you then had to move out and blame it on somebody. But even as the Armenians occasionally got scapegoated, they still were allowed to build their churches. They were given prime land on the banks of the river there in Esfahan. And so it came back and forth. When the Catholic missionaries from abroad were trying to proselytize among the local Armenians, the Shahs always took the cause of the local Armenians. So you can go and visit Armenian churches and such in Isfahan today and see that they were still there and they date from this period. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And together we bring you Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. This month we're telling the stories of four phenomenal queens of England, like Athelflaed, who successfully captured Darby, Leicester and York from the Vikings. Or Emma of Normandy, who married two kings and was mother to two more kings. How about Anne of Bohemia, who advocated for peace during the Hundred Years' War? Or Margaret of Anjou, who led Lancastrian forces at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Queens, you gotta love them. And we've picked out four Four crackers to explore for you in September. Join us for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be, to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. mentioned earlier that the Ottoman Empire is a neighbor and then war breaks out in 1514. And the traditional historiography, as I understand it, explains that the effects of that war were catastrophic for Ishmael, that it sets in motion a chain of events that leads to his death 10 years later. Now, 10 years is quite a long time if you're trying to prove a causal link. So I was just wondering... Yeah, no, it leads a little bit long. But what you're looking for then, if that were the case, if it was so catastrophic to follow that line of thought, then somebody should have killed him or deposed him. We concentrate on great men, don't necessarily like to do that. There were a lot of great women, highly educated Safavid princesses and such, both Muslim and non-Muslim in that period. But Ismail was, nobody made a move to ditch him, okay? No sitting Safavid Shah was ever killed. So what happened was that, that Ismail and later Safavids 
brought initially these Turkish and Tajik interests into the house. Marriage, property, and titles is the easy way to think about it. And obeisance to the various traditions, Sufi millenarian and a little bit of Shiism and such as well. So they had the rhetoric, but it also did the practical. And it was the practical that was the glue that held the thing together. And so after the Battle of Chalderon in 1514, when one would have thought everybody would have said, that's it, we got to find somebody new here, or the whole thing would have broken down into little polities again. In fact, Ismail and everybody doubled down on those same sorts of things. So again, land bequests, marriage, titles, and the whole business, and the confederation of the tribes and the coalition between the tribes and the native administrative class held. When he died, that was the trick. Because again, if you're basing it on an individual as being at the apex of all these different traditions, which populated the plateau, that's the ticket. Then how does one reconfigure all of this based on a single person? And the answer is, in the 16th century, not so well. Nobody deposes the house, but there's a lot of battles for who's going to run the show, who are going to be the confederation, the alignment within the Turkish tribal elements, and their allies among the Tajik administrative class. How is that going to get reconfigured? And that's where these 10-ish year long civil war after Ismail's death and Tahmasp's death in 1576. Again, takes a long time to work itself out. What's interesting, again, here's continuity versus change. In the 17th century, the 1600s, what you're looking at to look at Safavid success, in inverted commas, is transitions. What happens at the time that apex figure dies? And the answer is, over the course of the 1600s, those transitions get smoother and smoother and smoother. And after the death of Shah Abbas in 1629, little uneasy, no so much foreign invasions as much, but especially as you get into the last couple of Shahs, nice, smooth transition. Everybody is invited to the coronation. Everybody shows up, all the different constituencies that are there, including foreigners and such, all of whom see their interests as embodied. And now it's become the house. It's become institutionalized. And that's a Safavid success over these 200 and something years. So in some respects, the leader is there, it's important, but there's the idea and it becomes all these different constituencies buying into the idea. Also, practically, they get something out of it economically and politically as well over the course of this. So that's the part of the aspect of bringing people in. And this, of course, includes Armenians and Jews and Sunnis. <laughs> so there are the occasional outbursts, I get it. But over the longer period of time, how do these things work out? And one of the things I find also about people writing about the Safavid period is, are they aware of what's going on in the rest of the world at the same time? And hence, I come back to Edward I and Cromwell expelling the Jews. The Safavids were terrible. Look what they did. I said, yeah, did Shakespeare know what a Jew was? And the answer is no, he must have gotten out of, I don't know where he got it. So there's a kind of a standard where you need to hold everybody up and say, let's look at world civilization at this time and judge there, how did they do? And the answer is they outlasted the Tudors. And how long were the Stuarts around before they cut the head off? Yeah. So these are things against which to balance one's picture of the Safavids at the time, throughout the whole history of the world at the time, not just that region, while it's important, but the rest of the world as well. Thinking about the Safavids in its international context, mm -hmm. Can we talk a bit about that trade and diplomacy? We know that Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, hopes to ally with the Safavids against the mm. Ottomans at one point. Yeah. And I'm also fascinated by the fact that the Mughal Emperor Hanuman takes refuge in Iran in the 1540s. So can you talk a bit about these connections? Uh, yeah, let me take the last one first again, if I might. What's interesting to remember is that Persian, it was the lingua franca, both in Mughal court, okay, and also the Ottoman court. Arabic was the sort of scientific and religious language, but in terms of poetry and that sort of thing, that's absolutely right. So there were cultural sorts of affinities there, which ran throughout the entire region. And there were also not so bad relations between the Mughals and the Iranians. Not always. The Mughals had captured Kandahar down in present-day Afghanistan, and the Safavids had wanted to retake it in order to increase their trade revenues and taxes and such like that. So things weren't always rosy, but there were more affinities than not. There were ambassadors exchanged. There were at the Mughal court some Shia scholars as well. There was some Shiism in the Deccan area that is South India as well. So there were connections there 
as well. There were ambassadors that were exchanged. People went back and forth. So there were some affinities there more so than one would think. And in later periods, some historians would write about these as a kind of an entity. And again, Persian was the common culture language, as it were, that was shared there. And so there was an awful lot of those kinds of cultural things that were going on. And again, that even if the Ottomans were occasionally at war, that's absolutely right. You did have these kinds of other things. And trade, even when the Ottomans and the Safavids weren't getting along together too well, trade continued to go east and west because it was in everybody's interests for trade to move to the Levant and get taxed and then exported. So you had these different dynamics all going on at the same time. Now, in terms of Iran and the Safavid period, and if you will, world history in these times, again, you're going through several changes in the international, shall we say, trading dynamic or exploratory dynamic. Here are all the Europeans going out and discovered people who already actually didn't need to be discovered because they knew who they were. But you're also then in the follow-up in particular, and again, I'd look at this in terms of the Americas in particular, looking at the arrival on the North and Southern American coasts, if you will, of the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, the British, and the Dutch as well. And of course, South America systems were overturned and massacres were held. Politics was thrown into disarray. The Spanish similarly colonized actually and moved out into an awful lot of South and South Central and Southwestern United States. The British, of course, you did a podcast you did on Jamestown, but that was a colony that actually existed. And of course, the French were colonizing the northern part uh, as well and moving west. And in the process, bumping into the Native Americans who had their own dynamics and an awful lot of things were uptipped. Musketry was brought in, weapons were brought in, and some Indians were armed against Indians who wouldn't ally with you. It was a complete mess. Iran, in that trade, never really figured as importantly as paying too much to the sources would lead one to believe. So again, it's a question of looking at your sources, for which there's a lot of commercial and political accounts because you have all these merchants from the EIC and the VOC moving throughout the area. But actually, relatively quickly, they moved further east. And of course, that's how you end up with the EIC in India, and then Plessy, and then the rest of the history. There were some bits and pieces, the island of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf was taken by the Portuguese. There was a combined EIC off of an expedition to recapture it, which was done. The island of Kishim was occupied by the Dutch during negotiations over a new treaty. But basically, if you look at the volume of trade, therefore the volume of interest, it's really moving east pretty much. It was primarily restricted to Iranian silk, which is coming from the Caspian. It was a luxury item, but gradually both the VOC and the EIC realized that it would be cheaper to take it out of the Levant ports and also better quality available further east. So while our sources want us to pay a lot of attention to silk, actually, if you put it back in its context, it's a luxury item. It's important to Safavid coffers of the treasury because they tax the heck out of it. There is this question, therefore, of are we being led by our sources to pay too much attention to the economics of the situation? There was the issue, and Iran doesn't have its own domestic or did not have and doesn't have any domestic sources of what we call specie, that is gold and silver. And that, as later, was the big currency. And that was a problem. So the Iranians were constantly trying to aggrandize specie, demanding, for example, that silk be paid for in gold or silver by the EIC and the VOC. But since they weren't around very long, they didn't really get that much out of it. And they were trying to, when they bought stuff, trying not to do that. They wanted to trade in kind. And they exported silver, and that led to currency problems. But if one then thinks that pre-modern society is not necessarily, especially in the rural areas, as beholden to currency as we are today, then species crises, whom do they affect the most? And the answer would be urban, certain urban elements, traders, merchants, and such like that, small commercial artisans and such, who did occasionally do this, probably more often than not. And they would have been by this. But again, that's a minority of the population, but there are a lot in the sources. So you have to remember the context here. Again, the, the notion is that we know an awful lot about very little. And most of what we really want to know about, we don't know very much about at all. And that is life outside in the countryside. People are getting into urban history more, and that's beginning to uncover more kinds of sources, local kinds of dynamics. 
And so that we find that things are restricted to one particular area, but not necessarily going on in that area. The same kinds of dynamics are not at work in another part of the realm. So this is quite an interesting change. But again, Iran is not as much on the map, shall we say, as the Americas in this period, or Africa, and certainly then as well as you're beginning to move east. Of course, the Dutch keep on going. And the English end up in India. The Portuguese, of course, are already in Goa. So that's part of the Portuguese dynamic there as well, Catholic and such. But the Mughals then eventually meet the EIC and the rest is subcontinent history. You mentioned earlier that the story that we're telling leads us to think very much about the great men. What Mm. can we know about the women of the Safavid dynasty? We do know some things about some of the Safavid princesses, for example. And a lot of them had lives of their own, and they show up in chronicles and other kinds of things as well. They made donations to various shrines. They were educated. They were literate. They studied the Quran and other kinds of things. They were power makers in their own sense. They didn't always succeed sometimes and sometimes were toppled, but they had their own particular interests. And so were very active in these kinds of areas. There were women clerical leaders as well. The more research that is being done, the more women are coming to the front. And of course, there were prominent other kinds of interests of women who are participating in other spheres of life as well. So that really has changed since, say, the 1978-79 revolution, which in my mind anyway is the great watershed between how the Safavid period is understood in the Shah period of the old Pahlavishas and the modern period, as it were, in terms of recent Iranian political dynamics. And how one looks at the Safavids had a role in the pre-79 Iranian studies and Safavid studies dynamic, and of course, post-79, post the Islamic revolution, the Iranian revolution, rather, which took an Islamic turn very quickly, how one looks at the Safavids and how one looks at these things, it makes a deal. So it's important, for example, implicitly or explicitly, to identify the last Shah with Shah Abbas I, the great modernizer who liked Europeans and was interested in philosophy. And of course, anybody who likes Europeans is, by definition, a good person. And anybody who likes philosophy, by definition, he's a modernizer and this, that, and the other thing. And of course, the last Shah portrayed in those kinds of ways as well. And traditionally, we understand the Safavid period to have been brought down by a bunch of religious intolerance. And hey, presto, you then take the past and you project it onto the present and the model works. And again, I would say that's an implicit or sometimes explicit references are made sometimes in the field to how the thing works. If you tinker with that, it questions a lot of things. But again, part of that dynamic is the role of the harem and the role of women. And I find this problematic. And the more one does research into these areas and looks these things up independently, the more one can find that these named individuals played their own role, had their own active role, and were part of the court dynamic. But they were also part of that court dynamic in terms of, even though they weren't necessarily Muslims in the first interest, they married into the family or to the shahs, had sons on grandsons, for whom, in terms of legitimacy of rule, it was not an issue that they weren't 12 or Shi'i back to the get-go. That wasn't a big issue. Okay, who your mother was was interesting, but it wasn't a determinant factor in whether the rest of the coalition, confederation of tribes and Tajik interests and other groups supported you or not. That wasn't really a question, which is, I think, rather interesting. So there wasn't that sense of legitimacy of the individuals or of parentage, lineage, and that sort of thing. It was more important, their affinity to the house. So again, the women made donations to shrines. They sponsored cultural kinds of projects. They built buildings. They were literate. They studied the Quran. These are the kinds of things we begin to know about them to show that there are some names to this sort of harem thing, which is implicitly, if not explicitly, a bad thing. And again, Ottoman studies doesn't do that sort of thing anymore. Soroya Faruqi and other people have said, let's take a different kind of a view here. And for Safavid studies, there's still allegiance to that sort of a model, that it's one of the indicators of the decline of the Safavids after the death of Abbas I in 1629. Whereas again, if one looks at other kinds of factors, today we think of art, architecture, poetry, novels as being dynamic, constantly changing, being influenced by this, that, and the other thing. And Art and architecture in the Safavid period is exactly the same way. Europeans are coming in. There's influence of Chinese porcelains and such. And all these things are brought into the Safavid panoply of activities on a domestic level. In fact, some of the Safavid period ceramics are so good that the Dutch, in the process of taking the China, China, back to mix in some of the Iranian stuff. It's considered that good quality. And for a little while, the Chinese China 
market was closed for dynamics that are going on further east. And so they took the Iranian stuff. It was quite good. It had a domestic audience as well. You couldn't afford the same stuff that the Shah could have, but oh, I can have a good one here for half the price. And I've got one too. Manuscript illustration, calligraphy, and such as poetry being dynamic. And there are those who had mourned the loss of the traditional, but there never was really a traditional. That's a built up of an image of the past, which actually in the past never really existed. But art and architecture, especially, I think, embodied change and dynamism and such. And that's exactly what they did in this period. And things like porcelain manuscript illustration and such styles of manuscript illustration, painting, single page illustrations sold to real people in the aftermath of the treaty in 1639 with the Ottomans, which treaty lasted well into the early 1700s. There was, if you will, a peace dividend and there was money around for the middling sort to begin to afford some of these things. There was a specie crisis, absolutely, gold and silver and stuff. There were plagues and famines and such, which occurred and which necessitated the re-coronation of one of the Shahs in the later period, because it wasn't considered that day. Clearly, things were going wrong. It wasn't auspicious. So it was redone a little bit while later, because that's the understanding of how the world worked. But in that process, again, you can see more and more people piling into donations of things to shrines, art and architecture, religious buildings and such from all different kinds of groups. And you can see also, and it's very important for later Iranian history, the development of an alliance between the merchant classes, arts, artisans and merchants, and the clerics. And this is where you get into the dynamics of Shiism in this period. In the 1600s, Shiism becomes better, or shall we say, more established in some of the urban areas than it had been in the 1500s. As a result, then, Shiism, while it was officially established very early on, gets its roots, as it were, rediscovered in the 1600s. And so a variety of different things happen. One is the rediscovery of an awful lot of texts from a thousand years before and 500 years before, of which in the early period, very few copies existed. Now you begin to see the flourishing of manuscript copies of some of these key texts to the dynamics of the faith. And you see this taking place in particular from mid-century on. And in the writings of clerics and scholars, both in Arabic and Persian, the increasing reference to those earlier texts as you move through the century. But the key problem in 12 Shiism and in all the Abrahamic traditions is what do we do? How do we order our lives before the return of the one for whom we are waiting? How do you organize things? What do you do tomorrow? And for the 12 Shia, they evolve this notion of the senior, highly educated cleric as being the person who was delegated various amounts of authority to oversee the community affairs, things that the imam would have done if he was around. He would lead the prayers. He would collect and distribute taxes, religious taxes and such, for example. And that individual then was endowed with that kind of religious authority. There were lots of debates about this in the 1600s. Not all clerics agreed, but in the end, that idea of the senior cleric being endowed with some authority in many of these areas took over. And as a result, then, when you paid your religious taxes, especially the merchants and artisans, you paid them to the senior clerics who would then turn around and further propagate the faith protect and defend and expand the faith. That was the idea. And so they, in turn, would build schools and mosques and such like that. And one of the legacies, then, of the Safavid period is all that religious infrastructure, some of it sponsored by the court, but also much of it sponsored by the clerical class, schools and mosques and studentships and such to train up the clergy for subsequent generations, but also that alliance between the ulama, what they call the learned, the clerics, and the merchants and the artisans who would pay their taxes in. That was independent of the court. So if the court decides to pull the rug out from under you, eh, we have our own sources here of wealth and infrastructure. And that alliance then, which kind of dates, especially in my view, to the 1600s, figures in key events wherein the clergy and the merchant or mercantile sort of alliance played key roles in the later 1800s in Iranian politics in the Iranian constitutional period, in the early 1900s, and in the 1978-79 revolution. That alliance born in the Safavid period paid off then. And the ties were very tight 
and the interests were mutual and there was intermarriage and the whole business. Okay. As a result of which your interests are my interests. And you need to understand that alliance as being crucial when you look at later events in more recent Iranian history. That is a very useful place to close because you've given us a sense of how the past relates to the present and how the dynasty has set the stage for subsequent centuries of history all the way through to the Iranian revolution. This has been a really fascinating insight into a dynasty that, as you have argued, managed to survive when so many didn't and managed to find ways of dealing with the problems of investing everything in one central head and moving on from that. And it's been really interesting to hear about the sort of evidence you use and the ways in which that's developing. So it clearly is a very lively field and there's fascinating work going on. And today has been an introduction, but it's been such a good one. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much for asking me. I really enjoyed it. And I really like the podcasts and I will now have some time to listen to some more of them because they've really been quite enjoyable. Thank you so much. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the tutors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.